Book Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbacks, Wordsworth Books, gives us a bag full of the best in fiction and non-fiction. Beverly Ross Muller and Mike Fitzjames have Ireland in mind, Beverly with Emma Donoghue's novel The Wonder, and Mike with John Banville's Timepiece, a Dublin memoir, and Pete McCarthy's Hilarious McCarthy's Bar. Then, as always, Mike Fitzjames sets our nerves a jangle with thrillers, two this month by Karen Rose and Ian Rankin. Melvin Minar reviews historian Hermann Hilumi, an autobiography. This is Hilumi's colourful, controversial and feisty career in local history and politics. Jane Raffaele finds Patina Gupper's The Book of Memory memorable. Jay Heal considers two very different books about human relationships which he recommends as excellent reading for young adults. Vanessa Levenstein found more good reading for young adults in Alice Hoffman's Faithful. Myrna Robbins finds fine Africana in Yeoman of the Karoo, the story of the Imperial Yeomanry Hospital at Dealfontein, by Rose Willis, Arnold van Veek and J.C.K. de Villiers. Philippa Schaefitz finds well-seasoned reasons to rush to the kitchen in Reuben Riffle's fourth cookbook, Reuben at Home, while Philip Todras finds joyfulness in The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World by the Nobel Peace Prize laureates His Holiness Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama, and Archbishop Emeritus, <laughs> sorry, Emeritus Desmond Tutu with Douglas Carlton. Do stay with us for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, a bag full of good books there. Hi. Well, February is a, quite a slow month in publishing. So I've sort of gone back to have, have a look at what there is on the floor. And there have been a few new books. The first one is a really nice thriller, good thriller, for those who like a good serial murderer uh, type um, uh, a romp. Uh, this is called, it's called The Beautiful Dead by Belinda Bauer. And um, she is a news reporter who thrives on appalling destruction and murder and that sort of stuff. She loves it for her show. She's very highly rated on the network. And he is a serial murderer who likes to have the publicity. And they sort of get together in a sort of way, you know. And uh, she starts using him and he starts using her. But you don't know who's going to be the next victim. So this, this is really a, a serial murder mystery with a twist. I enjoyed it thoroughly. That's Belinda Bauer, The Beautiful Dead, and it's 295 Rand. And then there's a new book from uh, Steph Penny. Her great, great uh, book, of course, was The Tenderness of the Wolves, which I hope you've all read. It was a brilliant, brilliant book, and uh, everyone who read it really enjoyed it. This is her third book. And, uh, in fact, on her first book, The, uh, uh, the Tenderness of the Wolves, she won the Costa Book of the, of the Year. 
So her her next book is called Under a Pole Star, and uh, this is three hundred and fifteen rand. It's set in the uh, Arctic, and this is it's the life of an explorer, someone who gets obsessed with the ice and exploring the wilderness up there. Plus, it's mixed in with the Victorian Edwardian morals of the day. This is the last time where explorers really ventured into the unknown apart from space travel and how it affects their families, their society, and themselves. It's an absolutely brilliant book. It's quite long, quite involved, but if you want a long, good read, Steph Penny, she's a brilliant author, under a pole star, and that is, as I said, 315 rand. Next is the third part of the Tierling trilogy. This is a fantasy series of uh, novels by Erika Johansson, and she has written a new sort of kingdom where uh, the king and the queen are fighting their fights in the parliament, etc. It's a fantasy delicious fantasy novel. We're on to the third one, and this is built in popularity as it goes on. And I know people can't wait to get their hands on it. So I'm just telling you now that if you're following the Tearling series, the new book, The Fate of the Tearing, by Erika Johansson, is in the shops now. And that is 295 rand. Her books are beautifully written and wonderful to read. Now, I've got a non-fiction here. It's called The Illustrated Dictionary of South African Plant Names. And it's not something I would normally do on this review. But it's turned into be a, a sort of semi-bestseller in this way. Because it's highly illustrated, uh, it's got explanations of all the plants, good drawings, good history. Uh, there's a really, really good, it's an encyclopedia a sort of format dictionary so you can find the plant names. So if you know the local name, you can find it. If you know the Latin name, you can find it. And it gives little tips about how it was discovered, where it grows, and all this sort of stuff. Very, very good. Very useful for anyone who is really into gardening and botany and uh, plants in South Africa. And then finally, I must just say, the low-carb is lacquer has just pr- uh, produced a new one. It's called Low Carb is Lacquer 2, so it's not f- particularly confusing. That's 230 Rand for So for anyone who is doing low-carb cooking, uh, their books are absolutely brilliant. They've sold extremely well, and this one is no exception. That's Low Carb is Lacquer 2, 230 Rand. And then just to mention some children's things, uh, th- that delightful series of books, the 78-story Teat Tree House and the various other stories on it, uh, they have been amazingly popular. I think it's an Australian series. Uh, the author is Andy Griffiths, and he is going to be touring the country. So you should be seeing big displays of these in, in the bookshops, and our bookshops in particular. These are delightful for any child who loves reading, likes to get into uh, fantasy, Parents who like reading to children, lovely stories, really beautifully illustrated, highly recommended. All the story tree houses, they're all on sale, all displayed in the shops. And that is by Andy Griffiths, and he will be touring, so keep an eye out on the bookshops. Okay, thanks very much. Cheers. Happy reading. Happy reading indeed. And here, right up front, is our competition question to win one of two. 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Who is the 3rd century Roman saint 
closely associated with courtly love, celebrated on February the 14th. We're waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. Who is the saint? Beverly Rose Muller, a strong Irish voice in Emma Donoghue. A plump-cheeked, angelic-looking girl of 11 who lives with her parents in a humble Irish cottage during the mid-1850s has become a local sensation. She has lived for three months without food and yet is apparently in rude good health and naturally the superstitious locals begin to talk about a miracle. Keen to see profit in this situation, for Ireland is still in the throes of the hunger years after the potato famine which killed over a million Irish, mainly children, the local worthies employ a trained nurse as well as a local nun to keep a 24-hour watch over young Anna to see that no hanky-panky is taking place. It is and was, but that's part of the book's point. The youthful nurse, Lib Wright, trained by a Florence Nightingale during the horrors of the Crimean War, arrives from England to begin her vigil over the puzzling, sweet-natured, but clearly ailing child whose swollen limbs and scaly skin troubles her. Lib is smart enough to realize that no one could survive without nutrition, but you can't figure out how it is being transferred to the innocent, food-refusing Anna. And there's another darker secret that Anna is hiding, and which may lie at the heart of her decision to deny food. The saintliness of starvation was long venerated in the church. A number of female saints were praised for it, including the 12-year-old Santafina of San Gimignano in Italy, who died as a result of it, but was nevertheless canonized for her purity. Nowadays, we call it what it is, anorexia, and yes, it is a form of mortification of the flesh, sometimes with disastrous outcomes. Lib, who calls herself a widow, is seriously troubled by Anna. She does not believe in miracles, but as she and the silent nun who are there in shifts to ensure that no cheating takes place regarding Anna's lack of food intake, if they do their job properly, is there not a more serious consequence looming? Whatever scam is keeping Anna alive, and for whatever reason, their presence may thwart it and result in the child's death. Into the mix comes a journalist who also thinks that there's something murky afoot, and he is the only one that Lib eventually feels comfortable enough with in sharing both her skepticism and her increasing anxiety about the child's survival. It is worth noting that such stories of miracle starvation among children were not uncommon in earlier centuries, and that a Welsh girl had died under real-life circumstances similar to Anna's. Lib has seen children die, and she is determined that it will not happen again, not on her watch. Emma Donoghue is the Booker-nominated author of the bestseller Room, made into a film that won Oscars last year. This book, The Wonder, again reveals her sure hand, the ability to create a sense of claustrophobia, obsession, and frustration. Though the book's timing is more than a century ago, her writing has a sense of freshness and immediacy that tempers the gothic horror of the story and brings it easily and readably into our own world, 
struggling with our own host of new demons and superstitions. It is a remarkable story and one that opens up a host of questions, while the book itself provides a neat resolution to its particular dilemma. It's very readable. And there's more of the gloriously evergreen Ireland in your two books, Mike Fitzjames. I would urge anybody planning their initial visit to Ireland to read two books which will greatly increase your enjoyment and in no little way clarify the essential core of all things Irish. My first choice would be Time Pieces, a Dublin memoir by John Banville. John Banville, a former Brooker Prize winner, is considered by many to be the outstanding living writer of this age. Be that as it may, to wander with him in this Dublin memoir is a privilege not to be missed. For many people visiting Ireland, a considerable time will be spent in the capital city, Dublin, a truly fascinating and entertaining destination. It is a city full of beautiful buildings, terrible history, wonderful pubs, and above all, the liveliest of conversations. The icing on the cake is the friendly engagement of the locals and their never-ending interest in you, where you come from and what on earth brought you to visit in the first place. If you have read timepieces and wandered the Dublin streets with John Banville, you will slip into this new world like a foot into a well-worn slipper. My second choice is McCarthy's Bar by Pete McCarthy. When it comes to travelling the length and breadth of Ireland, particularly away from Dublin, let this book be your guide. You will discover another world, one which lives in parallel to the sane world which you know so well. When you are not bent over by laughter and astonished disbelief, Follow this epic journey with Pete McCarthy, a serious writer struggling to make himself heard above the humour of his excellent jokes. Although he can take us through hilarious and largely drink-fueled set pieces, McCarthy is equally at home discussing Celtic standing stones and the potato famine. You will sense that McCarthy has such a genuine feeling for Ireland and Irish history that he is compelled to temper his writing with side-splitting humour. By the end of your journey, you might indeed have a strong desire to move to Ireland yourself. And, Mike, two thrillers to chill us. Good afternoon, Gorry. I have two excellent thrillers for your listeners this month. My first choice is Every Dark Corner by Karen Rose. FBI agent Decker Devonport wakes from a deep coma and immediately recalls two vital facts. Firstly, he has spent over three years undercover infiltrating a ring of human traffickers who operate on a far larger scale than was ever suspected. Secondly, the eyes looking into his as he wakes belong to a woman he completely trusts. Agent Kate Coppola's mission is the elimination of domestic human trafficking, starting with the customers and suppliers of a recently broken Cincinnati trafficking ring. Now Decker reveals a new nightmare 
one of the traffickers' previous customers is now collecting teenagers for the Internet sex trade. The search for this mystery customer becomes more difficult and dangerous. As with every passing hour, witnesses, suspects, and even members of their own team are systematically exterminated by a predator who ruthlessly lets nothing stand in his way. This is a gripping read, intense, complex, and unforgettable. My second choice is Rather Be the Devil by Ian Rankin. A new John Rebus story from Ian Rankin is always a joy with its impossible-to-fault crime writing and wonderfully evocative Edinburgh backdrops. In this story, a 40-year-old murder still troubles John Rebus, as no one has ever been charged with the death of Maria Turquand, killed in her hotel room on the night a famous rock star and his entourage were staying. Meanwhile, the Edinburgh crime scene is up for grabs, with various contenders for the role of Big Boss. A young pretender, Daryl Christie, may have staked his claim, but a vicious attack leaves him weakened and vulnerable, plus an inquiry into a major money laundering scheme threatens his position. Has old-time crime boss Big Jer Caffery really retired? Or is he just waiting until Edinburgh is, once more, right for picking? This was a totally satisfying read in every aspect. My choices this month were Every Dark Corner by Karen Rose and Rather Be the Devil by Ian Rankin. Enjoy them. Melvin Miller, Local is Lecker, with local historian Herman Giliomi. If the subtleties of language intrigue you, the title has an unexpected droll ring to it. Historian Herman Giliomi and Autobiography. Of course, the publisher, knowing full well the significance of this famous historian and author's status, gives his name the full capital treatment on the spine, and well-deserved. But consider for a moment the concept historian vis-à-vis -vis that somewhat hesitant tone of the an indefinite article before autobiography. In other words, an historian recording his own history may also not present all the facts, all there is to tell, a point of view in other words, as far as the personal is concerned. Earlier on this eminent scholar, now edging towards the age of 80 after a productive, proactive and let's say colourful, controversial and feisty career in the fields of local history and politics, defined his own purpose as researcher and recorder to mine deeply for the truth, facts and detail of the past. It was, he believed from the moment he started studying at Stellenbosch University, the only way of sidestepping the vagaries of unstable, in quotation mark, interpretation of history, of reading history from a specific point in time or point of view. He declares early on in the summary of a long life that writing history is only valuable if one tries everything to discover the truth, and not one in service of a particular political ideology. Observations of historians, he writes, are inductive and tentative. Naturally, there is a constant ambivalence at work in the methodology of the writers and recorders of history, but one senses that from an early stage in his career, Hilumi dealt with this by relentless analyses and questionings. It's a hard-headedness that frames his entire professional life. 
This book records the personal journey from his early studies and teachings at Stellenbosch and Cape Town University as history and political science professors. His numerous other scholarly, his numerous other scholarly, his numerous other scholarly ventures, and a life that has delivered some of the most remarkable books published about South African history, and more specifically, the Afrikaners. In fact, his magnum opus is indeed the dense and sweeping the Afrikaners biography of a people published to great and international acclaim in 2003. With his passion for the Afrikaans language and its cultural ambiance instilled from his family past and happy school days in the small town of Portable, this magisterial historical study came out in both Afrikaans and English. The concurrence was not accidental. In English, the book was a window to a wider and international world of a people and their concerns finding themselves in the harsh headlights of a rapidly oncoming era of dramatic political change. For the Afrikaners, the version in their tongue, and Giliomi has a knack to formulate clearly, if a little staidly in that language, it was a reality check of a fast-changing South Africa. If the Afrikaner stands as the entire centerpiece of his professional life, the 18-odd other books that came before and after, often in collaboration with other prominent scholars, form the linking network and frame of a devoted life. The new book, also published in English and Afrikaans, turns the eye of the observing historian to writing around the self. Given the tension implied by the words historian and autobiography, the reader is offered a praise of a career, sometimes in relentless detail, especially when Hilmi places himself in the maelstrom of controversies. Political folly and academic conceit are high on his list, but perhaps more so is his flag-waving concern for the Afrikaans language whence it came and its future. If one misses in this autobiography more descriptions of the personal, the passion, vibrancy and color of a life that included many personalities and places, one needs to be reminded of Hermann Gilliumin's credo of history writing as giving facts. For those looking for a closer encounter with a man who received and deserved so many accolades in his profession, there are only the facts and the texts. For those who are close followers of South African history and its current revise, historian Hermann Gilliumi and autobiography is a compelling read. And uh, Jane Raffaele. Bettina Gupper's A Book of Memory, you found memorable. The Book of Memory by Patina Kappa. Memory is an albino Zimbabwean woman who is fighting for her life in Chikorubi Maximum Prison in Harare. She is accused of having murdered the man who took her from her family and raised her. She is innocent but in trying to conceal his suicide and the reason for it, she has left herself open to the conclusion that everyone around her has leapt to that she must have been his murderer. Verna Sitole, Memory's lawyer, introduces her to an American journalist who has made a career out of exposing miscarriages of justice. Verna also suggests that she should write everything down that she can remember of her life and the events that have led her to this sorry state. What begins as a record becomes a book that will win its author more awards, a book no reader will ever forget.
the book of memory can be interpreted two ways. On the surface, it is the written record of the events which led to the murder of Lloyd, her adopted father. It is her story, his story, and the story of her family and other murders. But inside memory's book is a book of memory like the one in the Bible in the book of Malachi. As you read it, each chapter peels away layer after layer of the mystification that has prevented memory from discovering the truth about the life she is so painstakingly and painfully recording. There are many reasons to read this book. It is unlike any other book you will ever read. It is so beautifully written that at times the way words are put together will make you go back to a line again and again. You will never look at an albino in sunlight again without feeling that pain. But above all, the person who is memory will stay in your memory forever, dreaming of throwing birds of paradise from the top of the world. Jay Heal, recommended reading for young adults you have there. I have two books here, one about a young adult of essentially time now, and the other about a man and his young wife from times past. Both books are essentially about relationships. Caspar Lee is probably best known for notching up three million subscribers on YouTube, and he may be most proud of raising 21,000 rand in his 21st year to support a hospital in Uganda. The large-paged, colourful book, called simply Caspar Lee, is supposedly the completely unauthorised biography of the YouTube star, relentless teenager, handsome hulk, photocentric self-made comedian. It's the story of his life from birth, written by his mother, Emily Riordan Lee, and scribbled all over by himself. And the book is really about the relationship between Caspar, a troubled and troublesome child, who was supported throughout by a mother who believed in him, which is what the best mothers do best. There are masses of photos of me from big-headed baby to even more swollen-headed young star, who is actually a remarkably nice guy. I've met him. Full of sly humor and wry honesty, here's how to be a young adult in this age of multimedia and overhyped publicity. Caspar Lee is published by Michael Joseph. The other book is at heart a straightforward love story, which began in London 1947, when Saretsi heir to a kingdom in what is now Botswana, fell in love with Ruth Williams, who was white. Kalabar tells how their marriage turned them into criminals in neighboring South Africa, where mixed marriage strikes at the root of white supremacy. Prime Minister Dr. D.F. Malan had officially protested against Seretz's marriage and his right to inherit the leadership of his tribe. 
And this protest was flatly and continuously denied by successive British ministers who collectively forced Suretsi into exile. His own people in Bekoanaland supported him. The British government opposed him. The Bamangwatu women had grown to love our mother, Ruth Kama, and her child. The local white community seethed with hatred against her. In spite of all that, Saretsa himself had a very clear idea about how the protectorate could offer the model of a non-racial state. And in March 1965, the first elections were held in Bekuanaland. Saretsakama, king by birth, was now made prime minister by the people's choice. And shortly before Independence Day in September 1966, Queen Elizabeth II proclaimed Saretsi as a knight commander of the Order of the British Empire. Let's be honest, Color Bar by Susan Williams, reissued by Penguin to tie in with the film A United Kingdom, is an adult book, and it will need a mature young adult to read and contemplate how a young married pair faced international politics, deceit, and deception in high places. Their relationship held firm, and they remained steadfastly in love. As Saretsukama asserted, I have failed to discover one single charge against me where I have done wrong. He had committed no crime. All he had done was to marry an Englishwoman. Vanessa Levenstein, more recommended reading for young adults. Faithful by Alice Hoffman is a coming-of-age novel. Shelby's life changes forever when a terrible car crash leaves her best friend Helene comatosed. Hoffman is known for her magical realism and interweaves Faithful with otherworldly elements. The catatonic Helene morphs into a biblical figure with healing powers. Shelby, who emerged from the accident with just a few scratches, is racked by guilt and deteriorates physically and mentally. She is institutionalized and abused by one of the orderlies. And here's where there's a serious plot error. How could Hoffman be so careless about the post-traumatic effects of rape? It's clearly used to further Shelby's torment, and then the episode is dropped without much consequence and only flickers throughout the remainder of the novel like a bad toothache. Hoffman does, however, cleverly thread her narrative with postcards scribed with cryptic texts. Who is this mystery correspondent, and how are they linked to the night of the accident? I wonder what it feels like to cure someone, Shelby muses. Do you feel like a magician, or like a god when you save someone? Or maybe you feel like you're a plumber fixing pipes? Hoffman is clear that the clue lies in the word someone. Shelby doesn't cure herself by touching Helene's magical hand. Her cure comes by offering her own hand and by extension herself, to both people and animals in need. The title Faithful is apt. Helene's power to heal is one that can be attributed to faith. Shelby experiences the fallout from two faithless marriages, while the postcards speak of someone who is faithful to Shelby. And of course, her own character arc is about rediscovering her faith in herself. 
Philippa Schaefitz, Reuben Riffle's well-seasoned reasons to rush into the kitchen. Reuben at Home by Reuben Riffle, Quivertree Publications. At a lunch to launch Reuben's new book, small plates of food readily replenished were set out on a long table for sharing. I love the crispy chicken wings with gorgonzola grilled millies. Couldn't wait to make them at home. I did, and they were perfect. As Reuben says, the crispy spiciness of these oven-baked paprika and white pepper chicken wings is a great alternative to the sweet, sticky wings most people know. There was a warm noodle salad, Asian-style with soba noodles, pak choy, avo, plenty more greens, nuts and herbs, all dressed with rice, wine vinegar, soya, toasted sesame oil and hot sauce. One of Reuben's favorites. He has a thing for Asian food, specifically noodles. He was introduced to Asian noodles by a Japanese chef who lived in Pal. Reuben grew up in Hrundal on the outskirts of Franschuk, where he now lives. Worlds apart, the one decidedly working class and reserved for people of color, the other privileged and white. In Franschuk, he learned to cook in restaurant kitchens. He was greatly inspired by Chef Richard Carstens, now of Takara Restaurant in Stellenbosch. The slow roasted tomato and basil salad that was served at lunch was one of Reuben's first and one of his favorite salads, somewhat inspired by one of Richard's dishes. The secret, says Reuben, lies in hand-chopping the pesto. If the pesto is paste-like, it doesn't work as well. Everyone loved the char-grilled, rosy, red T-bone steak with a pear and rosemary marinade sliced for sharing. Fruit juice softens the meat and adds a slight sweetness. Reuben grew up in a warm, close, extended family. Today, he too is a family man, devoted to his wife, his son, and daughter. Reuben dedicates a book to his late mother, Sylvia. She cooked with care and shared with love. He often helped her in the kitchen. Reuben shares his food memoirs. There are recipes evocative of his childhood. Ma had a sweet tooth. He includes her recipe for banana bread, and a recipe for tapioca pudding. He gives his auntie Rebecca's lamingtons. She was a very good baker. There are recipes for chutneys always on the table. He has authored three other cookbooks, Reuben Cooks, also in Afrikaans, Reuben Cook, Reuben Cooks Local, and Bry, Reuben on Fire. He has won awards, celebrity status, and owns a number of restaurants besides the signature Rubens in Franschuk, where the success began 12 years ago. The cookbook is user-friendly, recipes at work, and photographs that make you want to cook. Reuben at Home by Reuben Riffle, Quivertree Publications, 345 Rand. All that's left to say is yum. Philip Todgers, we're ending on a joyful note with the Dalai Lama and the Arch. Philip Todgers, lovely cover, the Dalai Lama and uh, Tutu, face-to-face, side view. And it's called The Book of Joy. Yes, and to continue, it's The Book of Joy, Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And these two 
august gentleman in conversation and is quite a joy, particularly with Douglas Abrams as the facilitator, as it were, in recording it all. And he does make the observation, it was a case of the Buddhist, the Christian and the Jew who got together in Dharamsala. And there is, for me, the process is just as important as the content. Yes, we deal with the concept of joy and what it's all about. But I think I just want to quote from Douglas Abrams' opening when he said it's been a profound privilege and a daunting responsibility to convey the remarkable week of dialogues that took place in Dharamsala, India, at the Dalai Lama's residence in exile. In this book, I've tried to share with you the intimate conversations which were filled with seemingly endless laughter and punctuated by many poignant moments of recording loss and love. So yes, there is a great deal of content. I think it's a book that you'd want to dip into quite often. And there are pages of quotable quotes. But I think what's important for me was the process and the way he explains it as well. And Dr. Sabin says, from the beginning, this book was envisioned as a three-layer birthday cake. The first layer is the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu's teachings on joy. And he does go into that in detail. This comes through in the conversations. The second layer is made up of the latest science on joy and also on all the other qualities that they believe are essential for enduring happiness. So there's a commentary in terms of modern terminology and medical terms and all of that. What is really going on and the whole thing about the brain and what it does and doesn't do for us. And then the third layer of the birthday cake is the stories of being in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama and the Archbishop throughout the week. So there you have the context as well, and I found that absolutely fascinating. And the book truly is a joy to read. So some of the things that they talk about on day one, it's the nature of true joy. On day two and three, the obstacles to joy. And trust me, there are many as you'll go through. It's not always easy to be walking around with smiling faces. And both these world leaders in terms of you know, spirituality and so on have had very trying and not always joyful times and yet how do they go through it and how do they cope with it and then day four and five the eight pillars of joy and I must say I haven't really dug too deep into that area because I keep going backwards and forwards but as I said to me what really came through very powerfully is the process and the actual meeting and even the problems relating to that people not being well, getting together, happening in Dharamsala, and of course it couldn't happen in South Africa for all sorts of political reasons. But the book is an incredibly interesting read, and it's not just about, um, as I say, the quotes which are interesting, but just how people find themselves. But there's one quote that I would like to do if I could find it, and that is really when they come to terms with the different faiths. And the conclusion is, the problems are not the faiths. The problem are the faithful. So, if you want a good book to dip into, it's published by Penguin Random House. It's the Book of Joy, Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, in conversation with Douglas Abrams. It is available for the price of 305 Rand. I think it's a book you'd want to keep close to your bedside and dip into very, very often. And that's it then. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for your calls to Diego, especially we send strength. Today's winners, let me find the piece of paper. Today's winners, uh, Judy Skeggs, it looks like, and Ian Higgins will ring you straight after this. It's Matinee, up next with Johan Heber and Amanda Borta's bookkisser at the same time on Wednesday, Feb the 15th. Oh, day after 
Valentine's Day. FMR Book Choice will be podcast on our website, www.fmr.co.za. From Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music and cleverly kept the show on the road. And from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's Give a Book to a Loved One on Valentine's Day. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.